Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Good morning, and thank you, George. Uh, It is good to be here with you all today. Uh, If you will, find your way to Proverbs chapter 28, 13 and 14. That's going to be our passage. And while you're going there, uh, I'll say I, I am thankful to be a graduate of Southeastern Seminary, uh, especially on mornings when I wake up and I've been dreaming. I don't know if you've ever had this dream, but it still sometimes happens to me. I've been dreaming that it's the last day of the semester and papers and finals are due and there's a class that I have totally forgotten about. Like it's not even on my radar. I blew it off all, all semester, and now I've got to go in and take this final that I know absolutely nothing about. And it's always such a realistic dream. I don't know if you have these kinds of dreams. When you're waking up, you're like, is this true? Is this not? Uh, so when I wake up, I'm just so thankful to be a graduate <laughs> of this institution and to find out that I really did finish my degree, you know, tetelestai. Um, seminary jokes, you don't get to make those in too many places, so you got to get them while you can. But really, uh, my time as a student here at Southeastern had a monumental impact on me personally and on my ministry, and I'm deeply grateful for all the people that were uh, a part of that. So I want to talk with you today about the gift of of confession. We often think about confession as maybe a discipline or a necessary unpleasantry, but I believe that for us, it's truly a gift. You know, it seems everywhere you turn these days, there's another church leadership crisis. Another pastor, another ministry leader, another youth worker, another counselor who's been caught and exposed for some sort of sin or abuse in leadership. And it just makes me wonder, how did they get there? Where along the way was the great disconnect from whom they seemed to be at first And then where they ended up. And how do I not end up there? Because knowing my own sinful proclivities, that is a real possibility. So um, this is a a wood-splitting wedge, okay? Uh, I thought about bringing my maul and a piece of wood up here with me to split a piece of wood in front of you, but then I thought about those Old Testament passages, you know, where the axe head accidentally flies off of the axe and uh, hit someone, and then I would have to run to a city of refuge, and I, that's just a lot for today. So I brought the little hammer and the wedge, but anyway, the, the way that uh, a wood splitting wedge works is you just put it, you know, on the log, and then you bring like a real hammer, you know, a large hammer, and you hit it down into, into the log. And it begins the, the process of finding the natural breaks in the wood and begins to quite easily split the log into two parts. When we sin and we act like, we carry on like nothing has happened, we don't confess it, we begin the process of driving a wedge into our souls. And we begin to separate or disconnect, you know, who we purport ourselves to be or who we are expected to be, and who we really are on the inside. And this can go on and on as the pressure of life drives that wedge deeper and deeper into our soul, and we can begin over time to live and operate 
like two completely different people, split between who we're supposed to be, who we're expected to be, you know, godly Christian leaders or whatever, and who we really are. So is there a way to reverse that process, to pull the wedge back out and to make the pieces whole again, to live an integrated life? Yes, there is. And it's found in the healing gift of confession. Proverbs 28 gives us several profound insights on confession, so let me just list some of them out to you, and then we'll look more carefully at the passage as we meditate on God's Word together. So this passage, I think, is going to help us understand, first, what confession is, like what it means, what, what it means to confess, the meaning of confession, why you would want to do it, so some reasons for confession, and even a bit on how to go about it, the process of confession. So what confession is, why you would want to do it, and a bit on how to go about it. So first, what does it mean to confess our sins? Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So, what does this passage teach us about confession, what it means? Well, first, true confession means not hiding our sins. Do you see here how confession is contrasted with concealment? You have two options in juxtaposition in the poetry here, confessing transgressions or concealing them, which means true confession is honest. It doesn't try to hide or minimize or excuse or rationalize or justify or explain away. Uh, I have a scar on my left elbow here. It's finally fading in in my old age, but you can still kind of see it. Uh, from an attempted South Georgia dog sledding incident gone wrong. Uh, as a 10-year-old, I decided it would be a good idea to hook up our Labrador retriever named Ranger to my little brother's tricycle and have him pull me around like a king through our neighborhood. And I had to sit up on the tricycle with like my legs, you know, up on the handlebars like the alien Sebulba in the Phantom Menace pod race, if you have any idea what I'm talking about. And actually it worked uh, fabulously. Ranger understood mush like a real sled dog. And it was all going great uh, until the big curve in our neighborhood road came up. And Ranger did not understand whoa or stop or please stop for the love of all that is good. And he just plowed right through that curve and the tricycle did not have the center of gravity to make the turn. So I took a massive spill, rolled the trike over, scraped up my arm, had some gravel embedded in it and, and all that. And because I was embarrassed about my stupidity, I did not tell my parents about this, about 10 years old. And uh, I hid my wounds in the middle of a hot Georgia summer I started wearing long sleeve t-shirts every day. And I was successful in keeping this hidden for about a week. But the problem was, as a 10-year-old, I did not clean the wound very well. Uh, it began to fester. And at some point, my mom saw it soaking through my shirt or smelled it, I'm not sure. And the, the, you know, the whole story came out. But you know, there's a lot of ways that we try to wear long sleeve t-shirts in the summer all the time and conceal our sin. 
and we lie about it. We delete our browsing history. We avoid accountability and honesty with Christians, uh, hedging the details of what we did. We blame shift or justify, rationalize, make exceptions for ourselves. And so in doing that, we're alone in our hiding. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German pastor executed by the Nazis, he says this in his classic book, Life Together. I'll quote him several times today. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Proverbs 28 says that confession is honest. It's no longer concealing our transgressions, but rather taking an honest look at my particular transgressions and acknowledging the wrongness for what I did without recourses to making excuses or shifting the blame. Now, there's a bit more here that this teaches us about confession. It means not just honestly admitting our sin, but actively turning away from it. Look back at the passage. See what it says. Whoever confesses and forsakes them. True confession means forsaking. It means I'm declaring warfare against this, and I'll pursue whatever actions are necessary to leave this sin behind. So true confession is not just like a verbal admission, you know, followed by receiving forgiveness and then prancing along my merry way, but forsaking our sin, disowning it, and cultivating an inward aversion to the sin itself. True confession, Proverbs tells us, involves decisively cutting ties with sin in every way that we can, not just keeping it around, you know, at arm's length for an easy indulgence or passively hoping that it will go away. Rosaria Butterfield says, uh, if you bring the baby tiger into your house and name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and Fluffy is eating you alive. That is how sin works, and Fluffy knows her job. So what does this passage tell us about confession? First, that true confession is honest, rather than shifty or self-justifying. And true confession involves willingness to change, to forsake our sin. But then what about some reasons for confession? You know, what I've described so far, like brutal honesty and willingness to change, these are not very fun, <laughs> to be honest. You said confession is a gift. You titled your sermon that. Those things don't sound like a gift. They sound like <laughs> no fun at all. So why would we do this? Why would we commit to a regular practice of confessing our sin? Go, go back to the passage again. Let's read it once more. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So, what does this passage teach us about why we would make a practice of confessing our sin? Well, the first reason that occurs to me is that sin is just a reality for all of us. The proverb only gives two categories of people, those who try to conceal their sin and those who confess it. There's not like a third category of people who don't sin. It assumes we will all have transgressions. This should not surprise us. So why would we confess? Because we sin. 
Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel that says, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. God has come to save the sinner. Be glad. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without the sin. You can dare to be a sinner. In other words, if it should happen that you come to discover that I am a great and terrible sinner, and if I come to discover that you are a great and terrible sinner, duh! <laughs> like, that's just facts. The cross has already told me everything I need to know about you. And it's already told you everything that you need to know about me. You see, the level of intervention that God had to take on my behalf implies I am a great and terrible sinner indeed. And if you discover this, it should not come as a surprise to anyone because the fact that Jesus had to die, like that's what it took to forgive me, already says quite a bit you know, if something goes down in campus housing one night, and you're telling your friends about it, you know, some altercation or some problem, and, and you, you tell, maybe you tell me, yeah, campus security was there. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. But if you tell me, yeah, and then they called in Wake Forest PD, it's like, oh, oh, okay. And you're like, oh, actually, a SWAT team was there. Wow. And then they called in the National Guard. Okay, okay. you see where I'm going. By the very magnitude of the intervention, the cross implicates all of us already. So why are we so afraid to be seen as someone who greatly and terribly sins? This is like public knowledge, as public as the cross. Plus, the grace of God is only offered to sinners, you know? So that's reason number one we confess, because we sin. Reason number two is that, if you look back at the passage, if we do not confess our transgressions, the passage says we will not prosper. We will not be at peace, never be truly happy. In fact, we will harden our hearts, it says, and fall into calamity or evil, distress, injury, the passage doesn't specify the nature of the calamity. You know, perhaps this is internal injury that happens to the human soul when we live with unconfessed sin. Uh, a fifth grade teacher described the hardening of the heart to her class like this. She said, we all have a little triangle inside of our chest that turns around when we do wrong. But if we ignore the pain caused by that turning triangle, pain caused by doing wrong, we will wear off the corners and our conscience no longer warns us. It will spin, but no longer disturbs, can no longer help us. And this is, this is a scary road to go down when you no longer feel the pain of sin. Paul Tripp compares this to a homeless guy on the street. You look at him and you, you wonder, how can he live like he lives? Always being so dirty and disheveled all the time. You wonder, why is he not embarrassed? Surely he once felt that way. 
but in order to survive, he's become hardened. It just doesn't bother him anymore. The trip says it's a perverse ability that all sinners have to become progressively comfortable with things that should shock, grieve, and embarrass us. When we conceal rather than confess, we progressively harden ourselves and lose sensitivity to things that should bother us. And the proverb says that this will lead us to calamity, distress, injury. In other words, hardening our hearts will wreck our lives sooner or later. Uh, Counselor Ed Welch, he's got an excellent article that you can find online about this called Disclose or Be Exposed. Disclose or be exposed. And in the article, he points out from Ecclesiastes 12 and Jesus' words about Judgment Day that eventually we will all be exposed. Everything hidden will come to light. (laughs) So he says, why not just go ahead and get it over with? (laughs) You know, why leave any surprises for the last day? Why risk the long-term damage to our souls that hidden sin brings? Why not rather go ahead and face the consequences and enjoy the spacious freedom of truth? We confess our sins because the alternative of concealing them and hardening ourselves only leads to ruin. Maybe now, internally, maybe later, eternally, but sooner or later, it brings wreckage. But then thirdly, Perhaps most importantly, the passage tells us that we should confess our sins because when we do, we will find something most unexpected. Mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is a most precious and beautiful promise for us. If we confess and forsake our sins, we will find Mercy. How do you picture God when you fail him? Does he have his arms crossed? Foot tapping. He's waiting for you to get here. Finger wagging. Face scowling. Finger always on the trigger. Well, if it would be a trigger loaded with mercy, then you are right about that. Dane Ortland writes, we tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy is a slow build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Puritan minister Thomas Goodwin adds, and it's not like, if you've read the Puritans, it's not like the Puritans were soft on sin. Thomas Goodwin writes, your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Yes, his pity is increased all the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his heart shall be the more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as any other affliction." If there is a picture of God that you should have in your mind when you sin and come to him to confess, then it should be the picture that Jesus gave us of a father 
running down an old farm dirt road to scoop up his swine-soaked son in his arms, kissing him, putting his best robe on him, taking his hand to slide the family ring onto his finger even before he finishes his apology speech. When we confess and forsake our sin, we will find the embrace of the Father. Mercy. That's why you can confess, because you'll find mercy. And then last, uh, a bit about how to confess, the process of confession. Look at the passage one more time. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So does the passage give us any help on how to make a start in confessing our sins? I think so. And I think the key line here is, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Now, interestingly, I only have to say this because I'm here for all you aspiring Hebrew scholars out there, the words the Lord are actually not in the original Hebrew. It simply reads, blessed is the one who fears always. But it gets translated this way because of the strong theme of the fear of God in Proverbs and the contrast here with hardening of the heart. So fear of God seems to be implied. Derek Kidner points out that this is a strengthened form of a strong word for fear. So it could be translated, blessed is the one who is in great awe always. So the process of confession begins with the fear of God. Meaning at the end of the day, you will likely not be able to turn away from your sin until you realize that it's first and foremost an offense before God. Because if your big concern, really, about confessing your sin is only about the damage that it brings into your own life, which I've kind of been trying to convince you of this whole time already, but there's, there's more. If that's all that it is, you'll pretty well be able to convince yourself at times no one will know. This won't hurt anybody, and so forth. But if you come to realize, as David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone I have sinned, if you come to see your misdeeds as grievous to the heart of a dear father, you'll be able to turn away when no one else is watching. And you'll be able to confess when you would never get caught because you care more about what God thinks than what anyone else thinks. So I think one practical application of this would just be to start a daily habit of private confession before God. I mean, this is one of the lines of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, is it not? Forgive us our trespasses should be one of our daily prayers. Of course, we should confess our sins as soon as we become aware of them. And you can do that at any moment. But what might it look like for you to take a few minutes at the end of your day, every night, and to review your day with God, asking Him to lovingly point out where you have erred and strayed. And if you need some help with this, I would suggest go to the Ten Commandments. Start there. Read through them. Pray through them. Or the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And there are other great resources out there that can help you through an exercise like this, like the evening devotion on the Lectio 365 app. But if you don't have a daily, regular practice of taking literally 
three to five minutes to review your day with God and bring him your burdens and your sins, why wouldn't you start that right now? Ironically, uh, Ed Welch says a time of daily confession before God was the best thing he ever did for his marriage. Because it's really hard to be defensive about anything your spouse has to say about you or anyone else for that matter when you just can finish, finish confessing your deepest and darkest spots to God already. And this is true in ministry too. You know, if you're a regular confessor and someone comes to you to criticize you, you know, for this or that, you can say to them, <laughs> You don't know the half of it. I am so much worse than you're making me out to be right now. But even beyond private daily confession to God, the fear of the Lord does help us when we should confess our sins to others. Because we fear God more than we fear man. And we fear God more than we fear consequences. I mean, why why do we struggle to be fully honest and to come clean about things that we really ought to come clean about. It's usually because we fear man more than we fear God. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want the consequences. And it's true. Confession is a terrible humiliation. It hurts your pride to admit your weakness and selfishness and all of its twisted glory. I'll quote Bonhoeffer one last time. And really, instead of listening to my sermon, you should have just been reading chapter five of Life Together this whole time on confession. If you haven't read it, read it. He says, in the confession of concrete sins before another brother, the old man dies a painful, shameful death. And I know that um, some things can feel really risky to confess in a context like Southeastern. I mean, I know you guys sign a covenant here that says you will do certain things and you won't do certain things and there are potential consequences if you do those things. But if you're unwilling to bring a recurring sin struggle into the light of others, are you really willing to forsake it? I mean, especially if you can't seem to find freedom or relief even after confessing to God, then perhaps that is something you should bring into the light of a trusted Christian brother or sister. Here's part of the reason why I'm talking about this today. I am afraid that the perceived cost of confession will only get higher as you go further in life and ministry. If it feels like too much to confess right now, it's not going to get any easier. There have been many things in my life that I have not wanted to be honest and confess. To friends, Uh, to small group members, to my wife. And for most of my life, I was well-practiced in the art of sweeping things under the rug. And I never knew the freedom that comes with being honest about my failures. And the most important lesson I learned in seminary was not how to parse a verb or preach a sermon, but to confess my sins. I was a very studious student here. I loved my classes, my professors, and I greatly enjoyed everything that I was learning, and I did really, really well. But somewhere along the way, my grades became too important to me. And during my first year as a student here, I was taking a closed note, closed book midterm, and there was one question on the test that I did not know the answer to. So I figured, just to be safe, 
What's the big deal? I'll just consult my notes real quick, you know, just to ensure that I have the question right. Now, you might not think that that's a big deal. And in the moment, I told myself it wasn't. But as it turns out, the Holy Spirit seemed to think it was a big deal. And he bothered the mess out of me afterwards. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Like, why did I feel the need to do that? Why would I break my professor's trust in my school's covenant just for the sake of a better grade? I thought about this every day for weeks, hoping that the guilt would, would just subside. <laughs> now, I confessed it to God, you know, because that's all I really need to do, right? But my conscience wouldn't let it go. And you know, the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that the choice to cheat on a test was really just the tip of a much bigger iceberg underneath. I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to impress, to impress my professors, maybe prove something about myself, maybe study at a higher level one day. And that had become more important to me than my integrity. But as it turns out, God's kingdom doesn't really need more people with flawless transcripts so much as undivided hearts. But did I really want to face the consequences of coming clean? I mean, the whole ordeal seemed utterly humiliating. All the people that I wanted to impress, what would they think of me? And yet, if the fear of man and people-pleasing was really at the root of my sinful decision in the first place, what better way to kill it than to have to admit it all to their faces? And so with God's help, I did. And it was not fun. But it set me free. And it pulled the wedge out of my soul that I had started to drive in just a little bit. And to my surprise, when I confessed and forsook my sin, I found great mercy and kindness from those I had wronged. Professors, my wife, church small group. And this didn't mean that there were no consequences. But I found that I was encouraged dusted off, picked up, and put back on the right track. And perhaps most importantly, that process helped me learn to embrace confession in other areas of my life with other people and other issues. Now, I share this story because I know that that struggle may not be your struggle, but at some point in your life, you will have things that you should come clean about and you will feel like you cannot afford to come clean about them. But brothers and sisters, what you cannot afford is to keep those things in the dark. The wounds will only fester. And the book of James tells us, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. You see, there's a healing and a freedom and a sense of wholeness that can only be found on the other side of honesty. You can do this for the glory of God, for the reputation of the church, for the sake of revival in our day, for the integrity of our own souls. Let's be people who live not perfectly, but honestly before God and before others. Let's embrace the gift of confession. As the Apostle John wrote, if we claim to be without sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This means you can have confidence when you bring your sins to the light, that you will find God's mercy because his justice has already been satisfied. Uh, we're gonna have a time for just this as we sing, a time for confession and for receiving God's mercy. Maybe today there are things on your heart that you're painfully aware of that you need to confess to someone and this message is messing with you. Don't harden your heart, go to God. And if you have need, go to a brother or sister and receive mercy. Maybe you need to begin to evaluate if you have someone in your life who you can actually level with, like scale of one to five honesty, five. You can truly level with. And if you don't, begin to consider what will it take to start that? Perhaps you need to help figuring out what to do with a situation and you're not even sure where to start or who to talk to. Today's a great day to take the plunge. If you'd like to talk with me, um, I'll be around at the end and afterwards for a bit, or you can just find me, Carson Cobb at Northwake.com. Or perhaps today for the first time, you're seeing the importance of being real with yourself and with God and that you need his mercy. Let me just say, in Christ, it's yours. It's yours for the taking. And he's ready to meet you right where you are today. Let's pray. Our good Father, we thank you for this warning and we thank you for the promise of mercy found in your word. As Psalm 32 says, help us not be like horses or mules that have to be led with bit and bridle, stubborn and only obedient because of rewards and punishments. Rather, help us to be tender-hearted, desiring genuine friendship with you. Protect us, Lord, from hardness of heart. And give us undivided hearts that will fear, fear your name until our last day. Make us faithful till the end. For your name's sake and in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.